Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our February Journal Club. How are you, Ben? Uh, very good, my friend, and looking forward to the first uh, Journal Club of 2024. Yes, and by the time people hear this, you'll be back from IMSH, where you're about to go to over in San Diego. You must be looking forward to that. That's right, I am looking forward to it, and I'm hoping to record some snippets as well. So if there's any Simulcast fans uh, while we're there, I'll hopefully be uh, uploading some nice little quotes onto the Dropbox that we can hopefully assemble into something. Yes, for people who may not have been before, the International Meeting for Simulation and Healthcare uh, is always on in January, and this year it's in San Diego, and it's a massive event, um, a couple of thousand attendees, I think, lots of exhibitors. So if you are interested, they've got a website and lots of materials from uh, the Society for Simulation and Healthcare because it's their big annual meeting. Speaking of conferences, I think everyone this week will have heard about their abstracts at CSAM, which is the European Simulation Meeting uh, in June in Prague this year. Knowing a few people around the traps, sounds like we're going to have a chance to hear lots of people's experiences. And so I'm really looking forward to that, Ben. A hundred percent. And in such a photogenic city too. Exactly. And one of the things uh, will be a workshop that you and I are doing about simulcast and uh, keeping up to date with the literature. So looking forward to that. If people needed any more excuse to go to Prague, I'm sure. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, as usual, simulcast listeners, we've got four articles that we're going to talk about. There's a bit of a theme thinking about uh, how we design clinical practice tools, cognitive aids, a bit of a theme of airway. And uh, Ben Simon, author, takes the stage for our last paper. But let's start with one that is focused on mental practice. Uh, This one is titled Dream One, Do One, Teach One a mental practice script for bougie-assisted cricothyrotomy. And this is from some friends of ours, Jamie Riggs, Melissa McGowan, Christopher Hicks, in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, November last year. And uh, this is not the first time this group have written about mental rehearsal. And my take-homes from this are that we know mental practice works, and we know that from all sorts of industries and sport, uh, music, And it's especially useful in our setting, and by that I mean healthcare and specifically critical care, for these high acuity, low occurrence events or halo events uh, where you don't get the chance to practice it in the real world very much. So you either need to do tactile simulation or mental practice. Trouble is mental practice, you can say it easily, but what does it actually mean? And usually it's most effective if there's a script that people can work through and talk through in their heads as they're imagining doing this procedure. Uh, But this is not very well developed as to how you develop this script. So this is really what this article is all about. So in the introduction, they go into mental practice a little bit and why and how uh, it works. And I'm going to read a little quote from it here because I think this really defines it quite well. Mental practice generates mental representations of the skill being practice, which has been shown to be as effective as additional physical practice for selected surgical skills. Wild. 
Uh, a common method of mental practice implementation is the use of scripts, which aim to strengthen the mental imagery representation of the task in question. So this isn't just a matter of thinking about a sequence of steps, but actually imagining the visual cues, the tactile cues, the auditory cues that trigger people imagining themselves in this environment as they're doing the procedure. So um, in the introduction, they describe that. And then they also describe the context that they're uh, looking at, which in this case is a rarely performed procedure, which is making a hole in the front of the neck when for any reason uh, there's a problem with accessing the airway from the top end. So how did they go about doing that? They described their innovation, and again I quote here, to develop a mental practice script for bougie-assisted cricothyrotomy, which is the name of this procedure, by combining a list of procedural steps, which they had before, uh, with newly identified visual, cognitive, and kinesthetic experiences. So how did they get these experiences? Well, they interviewed eight emergency physicians, and they asked them to describe in detail their experiences. And they used a list of steps and then matched the sort of visual, cognitive, and these kinesthetic or um, tactile cues from these interviews. And they found about 13 to 14 cues per procedure, and they came up with a final script, which they put in their Appendix 1. And I feel like for um, people to have a sense of it, it's probably worth me reading a little bit of this out, Ben, just to kind of get a sense of it. So just to put you in the picture, um, this would be a situation, you've got a patient in the recess room, let's say they've had terrible injuries to their face, um, but they need to be put under anaesthetic, but there's no way you can do that from the top end how we normally would give an anaesthetic, so you need to make a hole in the neck. So now I'm going to read the script. So this would be someone imagining this so that they're ready to do it in the real world. And I quote, Declare to the team that this is a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario and that it is time to proceed with a surgical airway. I ask for a bougie, scalpel and endotracheal tube to be brought to the bedside. I direct the person at the head of the bed to continue their efforts to oxygenate. Um, turning to my colleague, I ask them to take over as a resuscitation team leader and make it clear I am eyes off the patient. I move to the right side of the patient and straighten and extend the neck. I adjust the stretcher height and lighting to be comfortable. So even just with that little quote, you can see it's very detailed and they want people to be seriously imagining themselves and what they're touching, feeling, seeing, doing and saying. And then it goes through and it's probably a page and a half is this script that they developed from the interviews and from their prior knowledge of the steps. And really that's the whole paper is producing this script and describing how they produce the script. So they didn't try and test it. They didn't try and say it works. Really what they're saying is this might be useful if you're using this technique of mental practice yourself. And if you're thinking about developing it for another procedure, their method might be instructive. So it was simple. It didn't overreach. And I read it and thought, this is good. What about you, Ben? Uh, 100%. It just passes that clinical gut feel of this replicates real life really nicely, doesn't it? Um, I thought it was lovely. I thought the final um, script was a really nice and vivid read that really does put you in that moment very well. Um, one thing that made me think about this is, is I wondered about whether there is something about long-term learning, though, where the active work of generating your own script from your own experiences is actually the thing 
that cements something for long-term learning. And so I would be curious about how much impact kind of hijacking or borrowing somebody else's script is for that skill. And I, I'm sure there is lots. And I think I certainly even, you know, learned a lot from, I've never had to do one in a kid, for example, that's a very rare event. Um, and so there's lots of little techniques in there that are really good. And I particularly like sort of between the lines, there's a lot of, um, emotional containment as well. Like a lot of the words are about staying calm, anticipating complications and accepting that they're going to happen rather than trying to stop them. Um, and I thought that's a really nice balance of both the psychomotor aspects and also uh, the emotional experience of that event. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just getting a couple of those interviews up, you know, expecting lots of blood. I see that in some of these cues that they identified. And so getting people psychologically ready for what they might experience in a visual or auditory way uh, is a great strength. To your point about is it the fact of making it that's very effective, and I suspect it probably is, like most things. If you're doing the teaching, you're probably learning more than the people you're instructing. Uh, if you're developing the clinical pathway, probably you learn more about it than the people who actually use the pathway. Uh, it doesn't mean that being given one isn't useful and maybe a start and maybe just extremely good as an example, even if you might have a slightly different setup or kit or steps, uh, because we do know that there's also some variation in practice. Um, but I, I think uh, your point is well made and this is probably useful in either case. And, it, and I'd also say um, probably this reminds me a lot of, I remember the mental rehearsal script you sent me to borrow for COVID um, and donning and doffing during COVID. Um, and in some ways, both of those examples are actually really nice cases where borrowing someone else's script is essentially essential because you might not have the benefit of practicing that skill uh, frequently in your own experience. And so for me, I might do this once every 10 years, if that. And so actually uh, learning what this crew do mentally and talking myself through that is the only chance I've got anyway. So I guess it's an academic point to try and learn from, generate my own script from my own experiences if it's a once in a decade uh, experience for us. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think the other thing that maybe I didn't say here, but is certainly there in the literature is you need to have something to draw upon for this mental practice. You can't just read that as someone who's never even thought about this procedure and think, oh, yeah, that sounds fair enough. It does seem that mental practice is primed by some kind of physical practice. So ideally you do go to a workshop and do this in a tactile type simulation and then you have your mental practice that can kind of draw upon that experience as well as the script. Uh, my real question with this is, is it just for individuals or can you do this as dyads or teams? Because I certainly know with the uh, COVID donning and doffing, uh, it was something that our groups were doing in small groups where they would go through a practice at the beginning of the shift uh, to check that they had it right. And they were doing that together, which seemed to be have, it, have its own benefits. Uh, but does mental practice always need to be internal, mental and individual, or can it actually be a shared and spoken experience? And I don't know enough about that literature to be sure, but it would be interesting to see because clearly it takes more than one person to do the bougie-assisted cricothyrotomy, even if it's just one person with their hands on the scalpel. Yeah, 100%. All right, Ben, well, you're going to continue on a bit of an airway theme here, but now think about cognitive aids. 
We are. And so, look, we're going to go into a little journey of the not-too-distant past here. And I know I've been sneaking in a few older articles recently, but I have a little bit of an agenda that I think we sometimes uh, forget that there's really good literature out there that would inform our practice from a few years ago or that somehow assume it's decayed. Uh, and so for myself, I've been doing a fair amount of work working on algorithms within our own service at the moment. Uh, and so this article entitled The Effect of Two Cognitive Aid Designs on Team Functioning During Intraoperative Anaphylaxis Emergencies, a multi-center simulation study, uh, is from Anesthesia in 2016 by Stu Marshall et al., uh, and look, yeah, it's not hot off the press. It's published about eight years ago. Um, but one of the things I've noticed when we're simulating our MHPs is that algorithms that contain branches can be visually overwhelming in times of stress. So I feel like for teams that are really at the tipping point of their cognitive load and moving into complete uh, overload, uh, as soon as I put in like two or three branches on a sheet of paper, uh, that can be enough to just stop them reading it all together. And I'd vaguely remembered reading this article of Stu Marshall's a while back, so I wanted to go back and explore whether there's any evidence for some of our choices when we design algorithms. And look, reflexivity-wise, Vic, I should mention I'm strongly biased here. I really feel like uh, branches are problematic in a lot of our algorithms, uh, and it's very clear for me from watching the teams that I see that this is a, a risk for Algorithms that are designed for use in rare events with high pressure and time constraints. And um, I know you're going to get to this, but um, mm. it's particularly important, I think, in terms of the context of this study, which was in operating theatres with anaesthetic teams. And difficult airway algorithms are basically just out-of-control branching. And like you, I've always gone, I'm just never going to be able to do that if I'm really in that awful situation. Uh, and I, they make mention of it in the paper, but I think this branching algorithm is particularly relevant for that practitioner group and testing whether it's fit for purpose. Yeah, 100%. No, I think it's super relevant and really important research that's really done. So the authors of this article, again, you know, they explain that cognitive aids and algorithms are heavily under-researched, and they argue here that uh, done well or poorly, they can positively or negatively impact team performance and patient outcome in a crisis. Uh, and, you know, often we'll have algorithms that are designed with good intention, but either aren't used because they're hard to access, hard to interpret, or people try and use them and then fail in the moment. Um, and so this paper really wants to interrogate our performance in linear versus branched algorithms. So just to check in this context, linear basically means an algorithm that presents single boxes of text that you read sequentially, and you have to read or address each one before moving on to the next one. Uh, a branched algorithm is one where you have multiple text boxes that you might need to read, and they're often presented side by side. So in this context for anaphylaxis, you might have a linear algorithm uh, that has the pediatric and adult uh, adrenaline doses side by side in the same box, so you have to read both. Whereas in a branched algorithm, you might have a question box that says, are they an adult or a child? And it's going to branch out, and there'll be two boxes with different pieces of information. And when you're designing an algorithm, this is quite alluring. I think it's quite tempting to feel like this is organizing the thought process and making it easy to compartmentalize and digest knowledge. So I can see why it happens a lot. 
so this team decided to see what type of algorithm led specifically to better team performance. And I like that they highlight in this that they are rating team performance rather than individuals because that's the thing we're trying to help. And I notice you're nodding there, Vic. Oh, always nodding because I think there's almost nothing in healthcare that is an individual performance. <laughs> <laughs> it's all collective competence one way or another. So, yes. Uh, that's the end goal, right? So uh, they ran 24 teams of three people, a senior and junior anesthetic doctor and an anesthetic nurse, through three consecutive simulations around allergic reactions and anaphylaxis in theatre. And those combinations, because they were randomised to different orders of having a cognitive aid present uh, and a linear branched aid or, a, uh, sorry, a linear aid or a branched aid, um, and then all of those simulations, so 72 in total, uh, were filmed and they're available for analysis. And so the team analyzed those videos with a variety of metrics, uh, particularly using the Auckland team score for team performance, as well as some more pragmatic time-based metrics, such as time to adrenaline once symptoms of anaphylaxis began, uh, as well as documenting things like dangerous behaviors or errors that might have put the patient at risk and acknowledging and documenting those and the completion of core tasks. And look, how did the teams do? Well, for starters, a decent portion of teams didn't use the algorithm when it was provided, which I think reflects real life and it's useful data as well as to quote that, um, which is interesting because 90% of participants said they'd use a cognitive aid if it was available. But then 20% of the time, they didn't, despite extensive prep and education on the value of algorithms for this study. Uh, so for the ones who did, team performance scores using the Auckland team score were statistically better with the linear aids than the ones with branching or no cognitive aid at all. And specifically, their scores uh, in the linear aids were better for leadership, team coordination, mutual performance monitoring, verbalizing situational information, uh, and something called the team observable behavioral performance. But that all sounds great, but actually time-wise to the critical tasks and for prevention of significant errors, there wasn't a statistically significant difference between the groups. Um, so look, overall, they conclude that linear aids might be better for teams in a crisis, which I think is a fair conclusion and definitely doesn't overreach. My gut would be part of the challenge with this study is that people were probably already pretty good at managing anaphylaxis. They were appropriately well prepared for this in the study because the team didn't want to play any psychological games. Um, they were appropriately trained. They all had a, a senior member in the anesthetic team within the crew. So finding that difference actually might be pretty chuffed with this study, even though I thought there are lots of really nice design points within the methods itself. But I actually think if you took the same principle and ran a test through novice teams or teams who are less familiar uh, with either the pathophysiology or the algorithm, it might give us clearer metrics on how algorithms can help teams who are less familiar with tasks. Because I think that's while they might be helpful for high-performance teams, in many ways probably better or more effective at scaffolding performance for lower or inexperienced teams who have to deal with less frequent events. Mm, yes, I think uh, that point is well made because I think one of the challenges with this kind of study is what do you use for your outcome measures? And I know the excellent people, Jenny Weller, Jane Torrey and others who developed that Auckland team score and a lot of effort goes into it, but ultimately it's a process measure as judged by expert raters 
it's quite useful, but we can see in this situation it didn't necessarily correlate with time to critical tasks in this particular context for no doubt a variety of reasons. The other problem is I don't know what to do with a statistically significant difference of 0.5 on this scale of overall team performance score. It's very hard to know what will that relate to, what will that uh, result in when you're actually watching a team perform in terms of their tasks. So you've got to have a measure. This is probably as good a one as they could have found in 2016 and probably even in 2024. Uh, but I think the other thing is that it's a very evaluative um, study design, which means you just set up these three conditions and go, well, what difference do they make? Whereas I think as we'll see in uh, the next paper we're going to talk about, it removes the opportunity for iterative design and improvement of the instrument that you're using, uh, which might then involve some more qualitative measures and feedback from those who are being studied rather than just a measure of their performance. So, uh, look, I think this is the kind of studies that we need to have. We're just going to need lots of them. And it's going to be hard to know exactly how to compare when maybe we just had to tweak one or two things in the branched algorithm. Who knows? It fed into the kind of um, biases that you and I have, might have against branched algorithms. But you can see it wouldn't have taken too much to flip the other way. So uh, very good work. But um uh, hard to know exactly how to interpret that in terms of improvement in performance. Absolutely. Well, we might uh, just segue then into the second study, which is uh, much more recent, um, but approaching similar problems. So uh, this article is entitled How to Co-Design a Prototype of a Clinical Practice Tool, a Framework with Practical Guidance and a Case Study it's from BMJ Quality and Safety by Matthew Woodward et al. and published in November of 2023. And so this article is about the design and refinement of clinical practice tools, utilizing human and user-centered design principles. And I'm so glad you put this one in, VB, because it is a bit of a passion project of mine at the moment lately with my um, massive hemorrhage protocol work. But um, I think also this is going to be a paper that I quote relentlessly over the next couple of years because it's got so much good little nuggets of information as well as a really nice uh, framework and overview of a process that's becoming increasingly used. So look, mirroring my own experience, the authors highlight early on that clinical practice tools have kind of exploded in popularity in some ways, but they're very frequently designed uh, on an ad hoc basis, uh, often with lots of clinical experts who know lots about a particular disease process, uh, but maybe not a lot about user-centered design principles. There's often a lot of discussion about what content and information should be included, but much less consideration of how that information will be displayed, whether it will be usable, and how the effects of stress and pressure will impact the team's ability to access, interpret, and enact the cognitive contributions that the algorithm is trying to provide. And this has certainly definitely been my experience. I don't know about yours, VB, but, um, you know, I've got a lot of bias to, I think we've got a lot of bias to put stuff in, to kind of cram into like an unreadable size eight fonts, multiple branches to the algorithm and try and squeeze every bit of information that people might need. And that comes with a whole bunch of problems when we've created this Frankenstein monster at the end that we've designed, but isn't used or can't be used effectively by the teams who would hopefully benefit from it. 
So the article breaks down a five-step process they call the Framework for Co-Design of Clinical Practice Tools, or the Fresco process. And it's quite similar in some ways to the IPO framework that you and Chris used in your translational sim simulation to action paper. But it's got some lovely detail in there that I think is fabulous and very practically useful. So they have five steps, which is one, establish a multidisciplinary advisory group. Two, develop initial drafts of the prototype. Three, conduct think aloud usability evaluations. Four, test the prototype in clinical simulations. And then five, generate a final prototype informed by workshops. So it's a nice just step-by-step process um, through uh, building a coalition, generating ideas, actively testing and trying to generate new ideas in the kind of, what do you call it, um, in the collaborative process. Ideation phase, I think they call it. Ideation phase, yeah, yeah. Well, even just a brainstorm was the one I was looking Mm -hmm. for. You know, Mm -hmm. no no bad idea in a brainstorm type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then testing it and refining it and that really nice iterative work. And the article, i got to say, utilizes a genuinely impressive and for some of us at least quite aspirational clinical example of uh, a very collaborative and inclusive co-design work on a detection and escalation tool for fetal deterioration during labor. And while the five steps are great, I think that the way that the authors break down their process in quite significant detail is really useful for people who are looking to get into this area. There's a bunch of nice tips about the specificity of the questions that teams are asked. So, you know, rather than just showing them two layouts of an algorithm and asking them which one they prefer, really digging into the specifics of what do you think about the colors, what's the impact on how you assess things, uh, what's the impact on your thought processes as you read through the form, how's the font size shape that, the inclusion of specific titles. And Table 3 in particular, I think, gives great examples of the types of feedback that this generates and how it influences the design of the end product. I got to say, just seeing a team working on a clinical decision uh, tool who actually hire an ethnographer and an, a graphic designer, uh, it's just such a no brainer to me, particularly the graphic designer. But I can imagine it's incredibly rarely done. Uh, and the careful way that they balanced user bias, alternating the consultation order of different forms with different individu- individuals and craft groups, uh, I thought it was very nicely done and, and lots of. Uh, learning for people who are interested in improving the tools and algorithms that we work with so often. So this Vic for me was a really, really useful piece to read. Uh, I think it'll be one of the articles that I quote the most this year in my workplace. And I think it's pragmatic with a really strong academic foundation and applies those theories really well. Any thoughts from you? Totally. I, it feels awkward, really, the number of uh, clinical practice tools I've been involved with that have had nothing like this experience. And I think there is widespread ignorance that design matters. Uh, I think it also matters what it is you're designing. So I think a cognitive aid to use in emergency is a little bit different to a clinical pathway that is a sort of reference point and can be a bit longer and to digest. But the point is being clear about what it's for and then having this very intentional process about how to design it is important. Uh, lots of stuff in here that I think relates to concepts that we've discussed. Even the think aloud is one of the tenets of a visually enhanced mental simulation type thing, really getting people to talk through why they're doing what they're doing or why they're reacting to something like a pathway and, and what would be easier. A very powerful kind of process. Uh, I also like some of their terminology, you know, like design partner and testers, just recognizing that uh, clinicians in many cases, but not always, but end users 
should be thought about in this co-design process, sometimes through different labels as well. Uh, instead of just being the people who are assessed, they are part of the co-design process. And you can see the difference in paradigm between the paper we just talked about before, very quantitative, very assessment and evaluation focus, versus this one where they're getting field notes from an ethnographer who's observing things and lots of qualitative co-design. So it's a very different stance that these researchers have taken compared to the others. And so you get a different outcome, of course, and a different thing. This is really focused on the process. Uh, I guess what I would say is this is a Rolls-Royce version of how to design a clinical pathway. And you look at A, the number of authors and B, the resources that went into this. And you've got to ask the question though, Ben, is their end result better enough to justify all those resources. If we had a half-assed one that possibly took one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of the effort, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to know where's the cutoff point here for putting in time and effort into design versus a good enough one that might be okay. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure there isn't an answer. But I think, um, like you, lots of lessons here, but at the same time I wouldn't be taking it and hitting people over the head and say you have to do it this way or not at all because I don't think this level of uh, intensity is probably sustainable for most of the work that um, at least my colleagues are trying to do in terms of improving care. Oh, I think that's really fair. And I think one thing I'd, I'd, I'd love a like the same authors to potentially just come up with like a 12 tips paper um, because you can see they've really invested this really heavily. But I, I think that there are lots of small techniques there that can be adapted even if we accept that uh, this might be an aspirational standard for some of us. And I think there's definitely a um, – I, I do think just even considering the – you know, some basic questions about font size design and uh, flow um, can have such a massive impact on the readability of a really important algorithm. So I think there's, there's uh, well worth uh, an investment and I agree there's going to be a, a diminishing returns at some point of the level of consultation um, that is utilised. But I, overall, I think um, even if you have a small team and you start with some of the same questions, I think you'll be on a on way to a much better algorithm than just uh, um, the usual death by committee. Totally. And <clears throat> unfortunately, these authors might just have a seizure if you ask them to write a 12 tips paper. Uh, so you might have oh, to do wow. that one, Ben. And I can do that one. Yeah, I was going to say, looking <laughs> at your excellent infographics and seeing the difference between yours and mine, uh, I, th I think you would be bursting with a couple of practical tips for that. So Yeah, that would be fun, actually. I think you should, yeah. I can be your kind of person who's no good at it that you can use as your foil. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you to the team because I feel like this sets out the framework and then I guess we can toggle the detail that we um, invest in each of those steps depending on what we've got in terms of resources, time and, and what the stakes are. All right, well then, Ben Simon, we better talk about your paper. So, Simulcast listeners, this is an essay in IJOS, the International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, hot off the press, just promoted on LinkedIn literally 10 minutes before I got on this podcast. The title is Learning in Healthcare Virtual Communities of Practice. Let's Rethink How We Connect and Grow by Ben Simon and Katie Walker, uh, both from Martyr Education. So here's the key points. Um, <clears throat> if you're the 
TLDR type person. Uh, working and learning together is important, but it's actually not a given that it works. Uh, theory can help us understand it a bit about concepts like communities of practice, especially virtual communities of practice. And there are a few practical things that can help foster communities of practice. So that's my three lines summarizing your beautiful four or five pages, Ben. Uh, but the paper starts with a personal reflection from Ben explaining kind of where he's coming from. Two examples of fostering and trying to lead communities of practice. One, our own Simulcast Journal Club uh, from a few years ago when we used to run an online discussion in association with this podcast. And also your experience in a WhatsApp group with a more clinically based community of practice. Uh, and you tell the story and personal examples that start as the trigger to the paper, but then they kind of weave through the whole thing. And then your personal reflections are interspersed with a sort of more dispassionate voice, which talks about some theory and practice. And in particular, two sort of theoretical uh, ideas come out. One is probably the fairly well-known uh, Love and Wagner community of practice. And I'm going to quote from your nice little distillation here. What is that? It has three features, a joint enterprise uh, which is understood and continually renegotiated by its members. Uh, it has relationships of mutual engagement that bind members together, and it uh, produces a shared repertoire of communal resources, routines, sensibilities, artifacts, vocabulary, styles. So that's the uh, community of practice sort of definition and description. And I think it's really important, and this comes across in the paper, community of practice is more than just a group. Uh, and there's a few associated concepts like how people participate, including this concept of legitimate peripheral participation, which is people hanging around the group and as they get more confidence joining into it. So we've got the personal story. We've got one theory, which is this community of practice. But the other one that was newer to me is Garrison's community of inquiry. And I quote here, individual learning is intrinsically entwined to community. And I think we know that there's always a social aspect to learning. Uh, but this theory uh, posits that there's three kind of presences that you have in communities. One is your social presence, the extent to which learners project their authentic selves into an online environment. Cognitive presence, uh, the ways in which learners think, reflect and construct meaning together. And teaching presence, how an educator constructs and facilitates the activities and conversations that the learners engage in. So after giving those definitions, the paper then toggles back to the personal examples and, you know, how then Ben translates uh, those principles into his own experience with the Simulcast um, community of practice and the WhatsApp group that he had. And there's some lovely little examples uh, in there. Uh, about how that actually happens. And then I think one of the things that uh, then it goes through is, you know, why even bother with this? What are the benefits of communities of practice, opening doors for careers, offering feedback and coaching, fostering personal and professional support, but also the fact that there's a lot of challenges. And again, you talk about this, I like this word, or this phrase, the hamster wheel of enthusiasm. Uh, doesn't always work out that way and it can feel a little bit lonely if you're trying to foster communities of practice that refuse to be <laughs> pulled into line. Uh, but to me, 
Then uh, really one of the important pieces in this paper is the table three, where there's some strategies for facilitating healthcare virtual communities of practice. And I think this is where you've taken this theoretical framework, but really offered some, hmm, maybe these are the 12 tips, although there's a few more than 12, uh, about how you might go about doing that. So in the case of cognitive presence, things like having online resources that might prompt some of the community discussion and reflection, uh, facilitating discussions to link participants to each other, uh, but also the social presence, things like role modeling, vulnerability, and uh, carving out space for fun, using self-deprecating humor, uh, and teaching presence, so identifying first followers and delivering little mini tutorials. So there's a nice uh, description in there for the people go, yeah, yeah, that's all good theory, but what do I actually do? And I think you've given uh, lots of examples in there. So not everyone's going to be facilitating a virtual community of practice. Quite a few people might be participating in one, and I think it gives them some guidance as to how they can contribute uh, both to the community and not just um, for their own personal gain. And uh, I think practical tips with a theoretical basis was my kind of final little comment here. But I had a question for you too, actually. One is, in the title you say, let's rethink how we connect and grow. And I think you're positing that we're not doing this right now. And the second, how do you hope people will use it? Oh, great question. Uh, so the first one, a lot of the time, I think we heavily undervalue communities of practice and social learning, particularly within healthcare organizations. So I don't think we mark that or flag that or invest in that as a specific strategy for organizational learning. Uh, and I think it has so much power when it's done effectively and certainly watching our own education WhatsApp group in the children's. Um, it has in some ways sh given moments where we shape a shared identity uh, about the values that we share, about uh how we see families being incorporated into resuscitation, uh, what's acceptable behavior sometimes of how we talk about patients and, and families. Um, and so I think it, uh, it's just heavily undervalued and I'd like to see us, you know, formally incorporate that in some strategies sometimes. And then in terms of what you, what I hope people would take away from it, I think for me, there's the value that I've seen for other people reading it so far has, wasn't the initial plan, but it was actually more people who have been relatively passive or quiet participants previously getting some insight into what goes on for that person who is on the hamster wheel of enthusiasm and genuinely trying to invite and engage people who are sort of overwhelmed with, with nerves. Um, and it has led to a little bit more active participation in a number of little, little, uh, communities that I, that I work with where there's just clearly been a little bit of a, um, penny drop in terms of thinking about, well, maybe I can suggest an article, uh, this week rather than expecting Vic to generate 50 to a year. Or, uh, maybe I will, uh, comment on the impact of that reading this on my own, uh, reflections has been. Uh, so, um, I don't think it's going to change anyone's world, but I hope, I hope it's a nice read. A bit of mm. light weaponization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, I have seen that. We discussed this at our EDGE group as well, and it was quite a hit with the uh, group who was there. And, and I think some of them did think then about what's our responsibilities in any community, I suppose. Uh, one of the things that we discussed there, and I asked you then, um, is it shows to me that you think about the world in a very relational way. And uh, 
I guess my question is not everybody does and what you describe as a beautiful community and expressing and reflecting values others see as a very transactional uh, process of, oh, yeah, there was this to learn and then we talked about it in the group and then I now I know how to interpret the ECGs better. Uh, that's not necessarily wrong, but I wonder that some of this is shaped a little bit by uh, how relational we see our work to begin with. Yeah, I think that's really fair. And I, I, um, I was actually reading an editorial in BMJ Quality and Safety that was talking about redefining education as an, a relational intervention rather than pure knowledge transfer. There probably is going to be a very different experience for other people. Uh, I think that's something that always puzzles me when I put lots of effort into this, that there may be people who just actually don't want it and <laughs> would appreciate not being in it. But I guess as long as people are finding those transactions, whatever they are, helpful and productive, uh, then I guess that's still a good thing. Mm, it reminds me a little bit of Dan Pratt's perspectives on teaching. And if you view teaching as transmission, okay, that actually works in many ways and if that's matched uh, with learners and culture, then maybe that works, whereas others of us may see learning as a developmental process and that's our perspective on teaching as, as a developer of people. Um, and he was one for the plurality of the good, uh, quoting Dan Pratt. Well, congratulations, yeah, Ben. Hmm. Thanks. Nice work. All right, well, that's our papers for February. As I said, I hope IMSH is a fun time. I'm looking forward to hearing about it from you and obviously following some of the action online. And uh, best wishes with your presentations there, Ben. And I guess we'll have the simulcast listeners back for our March episode. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All Thanks, right. Victoria Brazel, Ben Simon, signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 